Welcome to Heidi's Lemonade Stand, where we celebrate the triumphs of people who have overcome their own life's challenges and made our world better. People who have taken life's lemons and made lemonade. I am Heidi, your host. Thank you for joining me. Well, Brandon, I can't believe I'm finally talking to you. This is great. So thank you for joining me tonight and talking to me. I'm so glad. Of course. Happy we, to do it. Yeah, we need to we need to go back. I think we need to go back like 20 years at least at to least. talk about some things that have been going on in your life and what you so have like, been doing. I was like, what, six years old? 20 years ago? <laughs> <laughs> nice try. <laughs> Crap. All yeah, right. Nice try. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, well... Yeah, I mean, where do we, where do we dive in? That's the that's the real question. Um, yeah, well, I know twenty years ago I talked about you on my radio show. I was concerned about you. It was my very first time to be on the radio. My very first show. I didn't have any guests, and I just <laughs> had to fill the hour talking about stuff. And I just shared how worried I was about you. <laughs> because you were a struggling drummer and I was afraid that you didn't have a lot of hope or things to live for. And I was really worried about you. And I was expressing that in my radio show. <laughs> and so I thought, well, what better thing to do than to go back and see how you're doing after the 20 years. Yeah. And see what's changed if things are any better. The homelessness has eased up. Okay. Um, <laughs> you know, the funny part about all of it, uh, like, reflecting uh, one of my managers early on in my career made a great point to me and my bandmates. And it was just simply to take time to reflect all the time, you know, and it's like, you can truly appreciate where you're at by looking at how you've got there, you know? And I think it's just such a great way to, I don't know, regardless how things are, it, how difficult things are, how great things are. I think it's a good point, you know, because it's like, well, let's look at the path that got us here. There's ups, there's downs, there's roadblocks, there's things we had to break through. There's, you know, and, and anyway, not to derail it, but um, I just try to take time regularly to just kind of reflect. And, and it's great to look back at the path and the bad times, the good times, the very mediocre times, you know, because it's all what got us here. And if we're unhappy with where we're at, Maybe we can learn from that and fix what we're doing so that we land in a better place. And if we're happy with it, we should learn from that. Do more of those right things, you know. I love that. But, you know, just uh, important to reflect. Yeah. But I I think um, along with that point, um, one of my favorite photos was when you posted a photo of your storage room in your basement. Yeah. Maybe maybe I should want to let you share that part. You your post. That was your post. I'll, I'm not going to force you to talk too much on your own podcast. <laughs> no, we <laughs> wouldn't I, want that. You have a crucial role in my story and you have so many crucial roles in it. And it's fun to hear you share that part and then I can follow up my story. Right. Yeah, it was 20 years ago. It was 1999, <laughs> actually. So 21, 22 years ago. Mm-hmm. And um yeah, we were just living in this house and had this unfinished room, this storage room with a bunch of junk in it. And I went in there and what I do, I like uh, t- 
tacked up a sheet on the ceiling yeah. so you wouldn't have to look at the two by fours. And I made a room for you in my yeah. storage room. <laughs> there was a little single, like a single bed mattress on a yes. little frame and a dresser. Yeah. And it made for a perfect bedroom. And it was tiny, but it was, it kept me off the streets very, very literally. Yeah. One of my worst nights, I, I, I talk about when I was homeless, I literally was, but um, I think that's, that sounds a little dramatic. I was like a squatter, you know, I was never like on the streets per se overnight, but um, I would have to squat with friends and squat wherever I could. And, and, you know, right around that time, I had spent a couple nights sleeping on the concrete floor of a garage of a used car dealership. And that was kind of a low as far as where I was staying, you know, it was like, we were using the garden hose in the shop to shower and like that orange lava soap that you use to get the grease off your hands when you work in the shop and, you know, sleeping there, using the garden hose, your storage room was a five-star hotel <laughs> compared to that. So, oh. It's well, you sure fun. you sure seemed grateful for it at the time, but man, oh. I wish I could have offered you so much more because you were in such a low place. Like you would hit the bottom, like you had, didn't have a job. And that's what I talked about in the radio show at that same time. I'm like, he doesn't have family to live with, to take care of him. He doesn't have a job. He doesn't have a place to stay. And so I was so worried about you because you were trying to be a musician. This was your big dream. You were going to be in this rock band and none of us, I mean, me included thought it was ever going to happen. You know, it was like, well, that's fun. That's what people dream about, but they don't ever do it. And so we were trying to teach you, like, you need to give up on this crazy, silly rock band dream and just go get a job and get a place to live. Well, that was the best part is, in all honesty, none of my siblings, you included, vocalized that to me at all okay, as good. much as I might have thought it you didn't tell it to me and that was what meant more than anything because it was okay. like it it everyone else the world was telling me what you're saying you know and it was just like at that time there had never been a signed rock band out of Utah State ever you know it was like not not to like a major label not to like a like a full-on career band you know had never come out of our state and so um uh, with you know donnie and marie and things like that but not a rock band like, but like yeah. rock band stuff um so you know it was it was the whole one in a million talk you know and like all of that and and for listeners and people that have no idea who i am and what i do i am a professional drummer i play drums in the punk band rancid i've been a professional drummer for almost 21 years or almost 20 years now um 19 plus and ever since that time that was the beginning of you know like we we said it might have been a, a rock bottom bottom as far as my living situation went right um, my mental headspace was off and on you know rock bottom might have been a few years older or younger when still living with our, you know, mom and stepdad and in this household full of physical abuse and, and verbal abuse and, and just this very low income situation, you know. Um, that was more rock bottom for you than that was later. Low, 
that was the years I was very suicidal. I, I didn't know who I was, what I wanted to do. I just knew that the path I was being forced down wasn't mine. And it was really hard, you know, it was hard feeling like an outcast from my community, from my school, from my family, from everything. But I think the beauty of our family was that everybody was kind of outcasts. I think felt like we were the black sheep. And that's something I didn't realize until more recently talking to our little sister, Amber, you know, and it's like something we can relate with where I think we all feel that way. And it's surprising where if you don't have these conversations, you don't realize how someone might be going through the exact same struggles you are. And it's like, what do I have the front of a healthy (laughs) person that's got it all figured out? Because don't let that front deceive you. It might not be accurate, you know? And it's like how much money you're making, what you do for a living, where you're living, that might not have anything to do with, do you feel like you belong? Do you feel loved? Do you feel respected? Do you have the ability to love, you know? And it's an interesting thing. I think I continue to learn from life and the people around me and loved ones, but um, as we all should, and it's interesting where it's like, wow, yeah, dang. Like after all these years, we still have, we had so much in common and we all did, you know, but, but anyway, I think to circle back around, you know, um, for listeners that might not know, I, our, our father passed yeah. away when I was 11 years old at the time. Mm-hmm. I was um, 16. And he died by suicide. Um, life changing for all of us, of course, as an 11 year old kid and trying to finish elementary school and going, you know, having fathers and sons campouts with church or whatever, you know, it might be. Um, and, you know, having a, a neighbor take us or my mom take me to like the uh, maturation clinic thing in school, you know, and people like laughing and teasing because I'm with my mom and everybody's there with their dads and, you know, just like the weird, awkward little stuff. But, um, but there's a lot, you know, there's a lot that was missed out on not having a father and a biological father at that. But it wasn't until I was like 15-ish, maybe, um, that... I was just not doing well. You know, there was, like I said, a lot of abuse and things happening at home. Um, And I was out of the house by then I was married and on my own. So I didn't, I didn't have to experience all that. So I don't know a lot other than what my siblings tell me was going on. And you guys would come visit me and stay the weekend just to get away from things that were going on there. And it was a hard hard teenage years for all of you. We, it was like, we were raised in the same house, but then I got out and you guys all had to stay a lot longer. It was like the, the small age differences were new worlds. The world Shane grew up in our youngest biological brother was a totally different world than I grew up in, you know, like in the way of basically from the timeline of when our father died till adulthood, when we were on our own, um, it's interesting when you listen back to your podcast with Shane, our little brother and hear his journey, you know, and, and what he did with his lemons, so to speak. (laughs) Um, and, uh, and yeah, and our little sister, Amber and everybody, their journey, you know, but back then it was like calling the police a couple times a week because, you know, assault happening at home and things like that. I was never involved in those things, but as a witness and, and the scares and the fears and the screaming and the whatever. And, 
you know, waking up Christmas morning and being told Santa didn't come this year kind of thing. And there were just like dark times, you know, being poor and, and having, you know, step family that had a very different dynamic than what we were used to and, and brought a lot of things, you know, to the picture. Um, it was just rough times. And um, yeah. without diving too deep into all that, it was one of those things that I, I don't know if you felt the same way, but it was um, obviously our parents make a big impression on the way we approach things and the way we do things. And, and ours, it was like, we learned early, like, well, if things get too hard, you can always kill yourself. Yeah. It was kind of the lesson that was like, all right, cool. Well, now I know. Yeah. And it's like, no, <laughs> <laughs> like, no. Oh my, like, I'm so glad I unlearned that because that was basically sums up my teenage years was mine too. I was a, a very angry skateboarder, but I never took it out on anybody. I took it out on brick walls and lockers and I always had bloody knuckles from punching stuff. I just wanted to die all the time. I hated myself. I hated everybody. I hated everything. And it was just like contention, violence and drama everywhere I turned and my one saving grace was my skateboard and I just rode a skateboard from just before our father passed away until a couple hours ago I was just <laughs> out my skateboard you know and and that's been my best friend you know and but then, dad died 30 years ago so uh, you're a little older skateboarder now <laughs> I, the concrete got harder I've learned <laughs> Isn't that crazy how that happens? <laughs> when you fall on it, it hurts a lot more. And all I can think is that concrete got harder. Yeah, because definitely. I'm still so fit and young and flexible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. My many injuries and overweight. But anyway, um, so it was when, when I was around 15, to come back around to that point, um, I'm very long-winded, as you can tell. This will have to be a two-segment <laughs> show. To be continued. <laughs> it's like a series. Episode two, the big finale. Can't wait. <laughs> He's going to finally make his point. <laughs> or I'm going to have to do tons of editing on this episode and get it down to a half an hour. Oh, gosh. Yeah. It's going to start like, yeah, just bump around all over the place. Like, but anyway, so I found a photo of dad and it was him behind this like blue, like sparkle drum set. And he was wearing, he never had long hair, very clean cut, very conservative, but he was wearing what was apparently a Beatles wig in the photo. And I had long hair at the time, almost exactly the same as the wig he was wearing. And he looked exactly like me. It looked like a photo of me behind a drum set with a vintage filter on it, <laughs> you know, and it was a trip. And something about that just clicked with me. I didn't, I hadn't gotten into music. I was the only one in our family that never had any kind of music lessons. You were in band, yeah. you know, like Troy was in band, like yeah. everybody played instruments and took lessons except for me. Yeah. Have a like record collection or tapes or CDs. You listen to more music. Our, our siblings listen to more. I just, it was kind of off my radar. So I didn't have this like passion for music at the time, but just seeing this photo, 
it just seemed like a cool way to take after dad in a way that could be positive rather than the path I was heading down that was going to be taking after him by killing myself. So it was like, maybe I'll try this. <laughs> I worked my butt off. Um, long story short, basically bought, earned, worked for my first kid, proper kid, took lessons for a minute, quit lessons because I didn't want to read sheet music and it just wasn't for me. And I was like mildly into it, but it was turned into a form of therapy where I just couldn't play. It didn't come naturally at all for me. But when all the contention and things would be happening in the house, I'd just go put on my headphones or my little boom box and turn on some music I was loving and finding new music and, and angry music and, you know, angst filled music that resonated with me. And I would just hit these drums super hard. I would be crying. I'd be screaming and playing till my hands were bleeding from doing that rather than punching a locker. And, you know, you do that enough and it starts to groove. And then all of a sudden, like, it was like this demon in me was starting to kind of mellow out. And it was like, wow, the little scowl on my face started going away that I permanently had. And it was just like, I just was lightening up. I could feel it. And then the big game changer was meeting musicians that wanted to jam. And it's like, all right, I have no interest in all this, but I'll humor the idea. And the first time I did that was like, I got this natural high that I was like, well, I've only experienced something like that skateboarding. I've never felt anything like this other than skateboarding when I'm risking bodily injury to fly down some staircase or something. And, you know, I get a buzz from that. And so, um, the other side of my story is a lot of my skateboarder friends were getting into like smoking weed, drinking, just partying, doing drugs and stuff. And I just, I had zero interest, no interest in any of that. I was like, life is hard enough right now at home. The last thing I need is to bring on some crap that's just going to create problems for me, whether it's addiction, whether it's getting arrested, whether it's whatever. I just didn't need any added drama was there was enough that was hard enough to endure i didn't need to add more myself you know i've always i i don't know i i i have a hard time sympathizing with people that create their problems you know and interesting i, I don't know well, I mean, and that's I, that's totally something i have admired for you for 30 years is because most of the time that is the easy way to get on the alcohol and the drugs to numb out and just not have to deal with life. And it would have been totally an excuse for you that everybody would have went, Oh yeah, that's fine. He should do that. He deserves to numb out. And yeah. you could have had that perfect excuse to just do that. And you never, even to this day have yeah. ever tried any of that stuff. Nothing. I'm 42 years old. I've been a professional drummer for 19 plus years and I've never tasted alcohol in my life. I've never smoked anything. I've never taken recreational pills or drugs or anything. But the misconception is I think people think there's a self-righteousness or a judgmental whatever with that. And it's like, no, my best friend was dropping acid when we were 12 years old. And I loved the guy I would have taken a bullet for him. You know, like some of my best friends to this day are addicts, whether they're sober AA addicts or partying using addicts, you know, and it's like, I have no judgment. I don't want to see people I love hurt themselves, but I don't think it makes you a bad person. I don't think I'm better than anybody for not doing it. 
it was simply my path I chose didn't have a place for that where I'm a high energy person anyway. I don't need, I would be the most annoying, obnoxious person ever <laughs> if I did anything, I'm sure of it. Or I would flip and be totally boring and have no energy. You know, either way, I'm interested in finding out. I just don't care. I'm always thinking and speaking in metaphors, as you know better than anybody, but I kind of used for myself the analogy that like, if I'm working with a hammer every day and I'm wearing gloves to just like protect and whatever and numb it and keep it, whatever, how are my hands going to get any stronger? How am I going to get calluses and build up some strength in my skin to be able to do that without needing that to protect them all the time? And to me, it was kind of like, that's life. I don't need something to protect me or numb me or get me through it. I'd rather just get hardened up by the reality of what it is so that I have the strength to handle that in the future. Cause it's going to keep coming. These challenges and obstacles are going to keep coming. It's not like I got a record deal and suddenly life was just smooth sailing, you know? And so it's like, if I'm just, you know, relying on drugs or alcohol or something to just get me through it. Cause that's the only way I cope. I'm never going to be able to handle a single real problem in life without that crutch, you know? And so, well, and that's something that else I just admire about you is your wisdom and your compassion. I have never met someone as understanding and empathetic and compassionate and wise and you've, you've lived it. You lived all the worlds. You don't have to experience the drugs. You, like you said, you associate with people who are anyway, but you are the most non-judgmental, giving, loving, I don't know. I could say all the greatest adjectives ever, but you, you are just so not the typical. I, I always say, if I saw you walking down the street, I would probably cross to the other side of the road <laughs> to not have to walk past you. Because you don't look like you'd be the friendliest, sweetest, most compassionate, understanding guy ever. Because <laughs> you look like a rock star. But I just always think that you're the person I'd go to first if I'm struggling with anything or need advice or just need somebody who's not going to judge anything I think or feel. And that's a great gift you've been given. And I'm glad you're not, even though you say you're hardened, you know, because you don't, you want to feel the calluses, but you're hardened to be one of the softest people I've ever met. <laughs> well, and I think I, I appreciate that. I think it's one of those things where, you know, you, you turn into a, uh, like a Skittle or something you got the hard outside, but the soft inside. That's <laughs> you. That's you. I love yeah. it. You're my but, Skittle. <laughs> I love it. Like chocolate more, but. <laughs> so you're no. an M&M? <laughs> I don't yeah. know. But yeah. And I think, I think that wasn't something I've always enjoyed since I was younger too, around these times was I loved breaking stereotypes and I loved, yeah. I loved surprising people, you know, as a skater kid, you know, walking around with green hair and whatever. And, and it was like, you just, people would have this assumption. And this was back before skating, skateboarding was like cool and acceptable. And there weren't skate parks everywhere and all this stuff. It was still a very, you know, subcultured thing that rebellious, you, loner, you know, for it we were chased by people and and tried to be beat up by people and and chased by police and all this stuff it was like very like an illegal thing to do <laughs> you know that was the the laws i was breaking was being a skater in the 90s and early 2000s you know um and even the late 80s if i'm being realistic but um 
yeah. And so it just was nice with skateboarding because I just didn't fit in necessarily to what people assumed about all skaters, but then I don't fit in with what people assume about people in my line of work. And it's like, people ask me something like, Oh, you're from Utah. You must be Mormon. No, I'm not. I was raised Mormon, but I'm just kind of like a to each their own person. I'm agnostic. I know that I don't know anything and I'm okay with it to each their own, just be good and spread love and all good, you know? And, and people are like, oh, so like you're in a band, you must party and you must I'm like, no, I don't. It's like, oh, because you're Mormon? No. <laughs> so you're straight edge. No. Like why everything, why do I have to be a part of a group or have a title on my choices to like make people understand? It's like, no, can I just be me? Like, I, I don't, I don't not do these things or do these things to make a stance or because I'm a part of a certain group or, you know, and it's just like, I think that's where people assume a lot and it's just fun to surprise them and have someone see you and like, Oh, you got a big red Mohawk or you have whatever. And like, Ugh, you're covered in tattoos and, and some of them have swear words in them. <laughs> it's like, Oh, this guy's, you know, probably not. Then it's like, well, I don't know. Have a conversation with me. I say, please. I say, thank you. I'd like to, you know, I tip well. <laughs> I try to be polite. You but are, you're great. Anyway, but but um, so kind of leading back to the story, um, circling back around for episode <laughs> six. <laughs> so here we are, living in your basement, and I think the misconception is is like me being homeless or squatting, as if I had no work ethic or ambition that was never Not it true. Not the true. problem I had was I was trying to pave a path that had never been paved and I had no clue what I was doing and and I don't mean pave that path solely I was doing it with my bandmates my friends um with my community of musicians we were all trying to figure this out because no one did it we didn't know people had done it and so I was have struggling with like the juggle of like, well, if I'm working a job, by the time I get off that job, I go home and I'm, I'm working to pay my rent and to put groceries in my refrigerator. And then I have no time to rehearse or play shows or do anything. And I'm trying to like squeeze skateboarding and rehearsing and, and playing concerts all in. And it just didn't really work with a nine to five type of schedule. So I'd be living in like an apartment or whatever with friends and and have like a little bit of food and whatever. I never had great jobs, but I worked, you know, and and it would be like, this doesn't work. I need time to do this. So then I would quit that job so that I had time to focus on my music. And then suddenly I'd be panhandling all day and scraping around to find somewhere we could even rehearse and where I'm going to sleep that night. And then suddenly I didn't have time to focus on it then either. Cause I'm like, well, this doesn't work. And now every day is revolving around survival, not around making music. And it was just this grind of trying to find how to make it work. And that was when it was like, all right, this isn't working. And that was when you were so sweet as to let me stay in your basement, literally save me. We were dealing with backlash from, you know, our mom and stuff like that, because everybody just, I don't know. I like to think that was looking out for my best interest, not enable my behaviors, 
but it might have been taken a little too far where it was disowning and and really just showing no faith at all in, in me. And so my support system felt really small and it was all very discouraging. And I hardly believed in myself, let alone had anyone else that believed in me. And it was just like, it wasn't that I was extraordinary in my talent. I didn't, I, even to this day, I'm not, there are far better drummers than me out there, far better. But the one thing I had was passion and drive and I refused to fail. And it was just like maybe stubbornness, <laughs> you know, it, it, everything kind of clicked. I found the right lineup of guys. Um, we started writing music that for the first time we stopped trying to emulate all of our influences and like write a song like this song kind of sounds like this band we love. This song sounds like this band we love. And we are, I was always in bands like that where every song sounded like a different band because we were just trying to recreate what we loved. And it was exciting to hear us sound a little bit like a band we loved and never tried to find our own voice, you know. And one day it just clicked and we were like, all right, we just need to apply all of these influences and just write whatever comes out with that and see what happens. And I don't know what flipped that switch in me and my two bandmates at the time. We didn't have a singer, but the music we wrote just suddenly changed. And it ultimately helped pioneer. I'm not going to say pioneered solely. It helped pioneer a whole genre of music. And I named the band The Used um, because some friends who had turned their backs on us and were spreading rumors about us that we used people and took advantage of people. And it was so painful to hear that when we had such a little support system and circle of friends anyway, but because one toxic person in that group um, decided not to be in a band with us anymore, he just tried to kind of poison the well and, and turn everybody against us and it worked. So our circle got even smaller. Um, I had a few of my best friends that had my back. Yeah. So we called up this kid that we knew was a great singer and knew could scream ferociously. And we had him come and write lyrics and a melody to a song we had written. And I had been going to concerts all the time of bands. There was a band called Goldfinger that I was a huge fan of. I would jump the fence at shows and sneak backstage. And I was just that kid that always ended up backstage where I didn't belong, you know, but I'd be polite about it. Not a total, total punisher, but um, the singer John Feldman and I became friends to a point where he like gave me his email address and he was starting to produce bands. He was this like unknown producer guy, but I was like, this is a great end rather than like chasing down record labels and A&R guys. I'm not going to worry about that. I'm just going to work with a producer, like reach out to producers. And so um, I was recording and producing. Well, hang on. Let me interject another story involving you. So so the one little turn of events here when I had started this band, I my best friend at the time, Spike, who the short version of the story is Spike is a woman. She became my wife in my first marriage. Um, we divorced very, very, we had the most successful divorce in history. I call it because she's still my best friend on earth. Um, we, we only divorced because we just uh, decided like, yeah, we're more best friends than man and wife, you know? Um, but anyway, 
her and her sister both worked at Burlington Coat Factory in Orem. And her sister hired me to work in the receiving department. I literally had a big red and black mohawk at the time and just wore sleeveless shirts and had some tattoos. And like, I, I, I could only really work in the back. I couldn't work on the floor. Um, and anyway, um, so I got this like kind of part-time job where I just work early mornings until mid afternoon. And that allowed me the time throughout the afternoon and the evening to skate, write music, do all this stuff. But that's where I was finally making a few bucks and, and you guys actually co-signed to help me get like a guitar center credit card or something. And I bought this little digital eight track recorder. Thanks to you guys helping me get that, which you guys also co-signed on me buying my first proper drum set. And it was like a pricey, like, I think it was a couple thousand dollar yeah. drums. Yeah, as like the, the squatter, you guys still co-signed yeah. and I'm proud yeah, I never missed a payment. No, nope, even you never did. Like for the money, I never missed a payment. So, but again, you guys, well, you might have thought I was doing the never going to make it, you know, wild dream thing. You still showed me the support I needed that enabled me to be able to do what I did. And so, oh. take all that. I had a proper drum set. I had this little recorder. In the end, that's all I needed was those things and my skateboard and, and my little circle of friends and family that did believe in me enough, you know. And our uh, storage room to sleep in for free. Exactly. <laughs> so I was making these recordings of my band. Um, that's when we did the first songs with our singer. I'd send them to this producer. And the first song that our singer sang on that we had written became the first song on my major label album you know we signed with warner brothers records at the beginning of 2002 um john feldman this producer guy hit me up when i was sending the demos and was like i love these they're great and if you remember we we're actually at the salt lake city airport sending our little brother shane off on his mission the morning that john feldman called me he called me from norway and he was over there playing a concert at 6 a.m he called me i happened to be awake i would have never been otherwise and this was just before 9-11. So we were able to go back to the gate. We were sitting at the gate with Shane, waiting for him to leave on his flight for his mission. And I got the call from this producer, like, I want to bring you out to LA, record you a demo. We'll shop around. I want to bring you on tour with my band Goldfinger. And I was in tears. I told yeah. all of you. I know. I remember that day. We we're all like crying. We're like, is this really happening? Like, does this happen yeah. to people? Right. Like, this is happening to him? It was crazy, crazy it, feeling. It felt like that right there was it. That felt like six. It was like, I don't care what happens from here. I just did it. I just made it. I just did what no one thought I could do. Yeah. This, like, L.A. producer guy calling me, saying he loves my music and wants to, on his dime, fly my bandmates and I to L.A. to record a demo. Didn't matter that at the time he was a very green new producer, what mattered was this was like a Los Angeles producer bringing little old us out to LA. Man, that just started the whirlwind. We went out to Los Angeles. We recorded three songs with him. We spent like three days there, maybe maybe four. Um, we went surfing. We, you know, like we met our who became our lawyer. He was the Red Hot Chili Peppers lawyer their entire career. We're like, what? Like this is, he was like, 
was and is one of the most powerful entertainment lawyers in, in Los Angeles. And he instantly wanted to represent us. We got management that was the guy that had been managing Guns N' Roses through their whole prime. And everything was just like so mind-blowing. So these guys started shopping our, our demo that we recorded. And long story short, we had to stop the solicitations when we got to 24 major labels that were trying to sign us. And so we had to be like, all right, stop. We're going to narrow it down to like three. We were flying to New York City and doing showcase performances with, for record label executives. We were flying to LA and doing these. We signed with Warner Bros. Records because the A&R guy just was so on point with everything that was our vision where because we knew nothing about the major label like music industry all we heard was bad things where you know you're told what to do you don't they're just everybody screws you over and and major labels are bad and all this stuff so it was such a sketchy thing for us to get into because we're like man all we know you know having loved punk rock and rock and roll and and these bands and and so much of that was just a very anti-major label a lot of the time and so we were just like kind of freaked out like what are we doing and this A&R guy who's they're like um they're the ones that sign your band and deal with you kind of day to day and and um in a nutshell and so this guy and the president of the label were willing to just it was like whatever we said went we did everything from pick the artists that help design our album artwork, pick what songs we're recording, where we're recording, with who, everything. We had complete control, which was something no one got at that time. And uh, it was amazing. We became the first ever band from Utah to sign to a major label. And our very first record went gold, which is 500,000 sales. Um, we got a gold record in less than a year from when it released our second record went gold in less than six months and both records are actually now platinum in the u.s which is over a million records they're platinum and gold in several other countries australia japan canada um, and i have a gold record world. hanging in my house <laughs> yeah <laughs> i have a copy of one and it's the coolest thing ever it's really <laughs> a gold record in a frame it's so cool it's so crazy so but... proud so it, it was, it was quite a wild ride, you know, So you hit and, the top, you were at the top, you're going along, you've got the used and you're living the dream, you're touring, you're doing records and it's perfect. That's the thing. It felt like it was, it was interesting because as much as that always felt like the finish line, the reality set in that that's the starting line. And it's like, you're basically, I've been in the boxing gym training every day, metaphorically, and that was life leading up to then. I didn't realize that, you know, getting a record contract wasn't me holding up the title belt saying I did it. That bell, that record contract was the bell ringing, starting the fight. You know, it was like, wow, wow. All right. I thought, wow. I thought this is where it got easy, but this is where the work begins. And it was everything I dealt with up to then was just the warm up. That was the rehearsal, you know? And so, then suddenly it's like, you got to be careful what you ask for, because we told our label, we didn't want to go straight to MTV. We didn't want to go straight to radio. We wanted to tour. We wanted to be constantly on the road playing shows. In the first, there were days we were playing multiple shows. I remember one streak of 19 days, we played 21 shows. 
it was insane. The tour cycle of our first album, the longest break we had home in Utah was 10 days off. And it was a, a year and a half, couple years. We really, really worked really hard and earned that gold record doing it on our terms and not just like put us on mainstream radio and we have a huge hit kind of thing. So it was awesome to work our way up and then get a hit song and another one and ones that were making the band blow up and then to get a hit record out of it. But yeah, it was so much work. And I was really just like the business guy in the band I, from writing our set lists, you know, before we'd perform what songs we're playing in what order to handling all the business with the label and, and everybody, it was something I really enjoyed was the business side of it. But the more things progressed with that band, we were playing, I mean, we sold out the Superdome in Sydney, Australia, the second time we ever went to Australia, it was over 20,000 people, you know, and, and we were the headlining band. And it was like, we were doing really well and in our prime and every, it was getting, everybody was getting caught up in it. Our singer had just come out of rehab when we got him in the band. Um, he had just come off meth and was a recovering addict. And it was like, all right, if you're just simply like partying, drinking and smoking weed, like, okay, let's just keep an eye on you. You know, like, let's not let it get out of control. And he got really caught up in all of it. And then it was, you know, the band was originally three sober guys and this partier singer. And then fast forward and through some success, it was three partiers and one sober guy. And so I'm just the guy that's into the business. I'm engaged to my fiance. I never got caught up in like the sex, drugs and rock and roll aspect of it all. I just enjoyed what I did for a living and I wanted to make it last because I knew it was a one in a million shot and, and I had it. I didn't want to blow it. And so ironically, um, when we were about to make our third record, I was fired from the band. And I was like, you can't fire me. I started this band. I named the band. I pr produced the demos. I've done all the business. I did everything. You can't fire me. Sure enough, you can. Majority rules. And the reason I was fired is because I was, quote, too different. And they wanted someone that would party with them. So while that I broke my heart that that yeah. day. I remember that day. It broke my heart for you. That was a hard day. I questioned, I was like, what's the point of trying to work hard, trying to be honest, trying to be good, whatever that means. What's the point if it's just going to land you on your ass and feel like you're being punished for it? Mm. When I had never been anything but honest in my dealings and business with my everything I'd done and ambitious and focused and driven, you know, it's like, I'm fired, you know, like, so there I was with no band and I had no, I felt like I had no identity. I would, I was Brandon from the used. I was Brandon from whatever band I was in since I was 16 years old. I, it was like Brandon Steinecker wasn't a person or an identity. I was Brandon from the used. And all of a sudden I was just Brandon. And that felt so bizarre. I felt like I didn't have anything. And and there I am back like unemployed, 
mixed feelings of suicide, anger, sadness, liberation. It was like, if this is the kind of industry that is, I don't want to be a part of it. If being this way gets me fired and the label's not going to have my back, management's not going to have my back, my producer's not going to have my back, they're all just going to go along with it because they know there's a paycheck in it for them if they just go with whoever they get to replace me and they can still get paid until the band fizzles out. It was like, really? I don't want to be in this industry then. And I wasn't going to be. I had no interest. I was done. Um, I was receiving calls every other day from my dear friend, Max Weinberg, who's Bruce Springsteen's drummer forever and, and just a phenomenal drummer, a phenomenal human being. Max would call me every other day. And I'll never forget, he said that when Bruce broke up the E Street Band, Ringo Starr would call him all the time and give him pep talks so that he wouldn't quit and so that he wouldn't give up. And he was like, so I just thought I could do the same for you. And that blew my mind. I was like, are you kidding me? Ringo Starr pep talks Max Weinberg, who then pep talks Brandon Steinecker? Wow. Little unknown Brandon from Utah. Like, and it just blew my mind. And it was like, wow, wow. All right. And the most ironic thing, I was driving to Salt Lake City to go see Rancid play. My favorite, you know, but like me, um, Danielle, um, my my current life partner and, and best friend, Danielle, um, who helped me move into your storage room. Yeah, that's right. um, she drove me in her car and helped me move the couple things I owned at the time. And I used my last dollar to buy her a Pepsi to say thank you. One of the greatest human beings ever to live. Um, Seriously, one of the greatest. Like, yeah, you guys are a perfect pair. She is heaven on earth right there. Uh, absolute angel. Yes. And, and yeah, so she's had my back forever. And yeah, so we were all, you know, one of our favorite punk bands, her, Spike, me, our couple of friends at the time, you know, we all loved Rancid. We always had, um, I even had a little band called Apocalypse Radio that was like a little side punk fun thing that we just tried so hard to be Rancid, you know? So Spike now, and didn't I were- you even, you, they, they were your idol band when you were young back in the eighties and you got even some tattoos that were the same as the people in Rancid. Yeah. Like, like in the nineties. Yeah. Um, they started, okay. but yeah, okay. They were, they were just one of our favorites, but yeah, I literally have tattoos <laughs> referencing Rancid. Like yeah. it's crazy, whether it's a, a, a song title or, you know, placement and a style, things like that. I have several before I even knew the guys that That's I was crazy. a fan. And um, so there we are. I'm driving to Salt Lake with Spike to go see Rancid play. They're playing two nights in Salt Lake. I'm on the phone with Max Weinberg the whole drive up. And he's giving me a pep talk again and stuff and give me legal advice and all this stuff. Just the, such a wise man. I love that guy to death. And we get, get there. The Rancid guys, I see him. We're backstage and they're like about to go on stage. And like, man, we heard about what happened. Stick around after. We want to hear more. And I was like, yeah, cool. And then they go on stage. They're giving me shout outs on stage, adding my name into song lyrics and stuff. Like it was amazing. It just made me feel so good. And we go onto the bus afterward, and it's literally the whole band and their crew all surrounding me and Spike and having me tell this story of what happened with, with my band, The Used. And they're like, man, like, screw them. You're the only one we liked anyway. You know, and they're all laughing. And they're like, 
just keep playing, start a band with your friends and it'll work out. And I was like, I already did that. That's what I did. And that landed me here, you know? And they're like, just hang in there. Something will work out. So I go home. I kind of just have to take this all in. And um, again, this long story long, um, but I'm just like, you know what? With pep talks from Max Weinberg, all of Rancid, you know, and just feeling like I have a support system that believes in me again meant the world to me. And it was like, all right, you know what? I'm going to start playing. I don't know what, I don't know what my goal is. I just need to start playing my drums and have a relationship again. Cause couldn't even look at a drum set for the, and this is only like a two month period. And um, I was fired from the used August 1st of 2006. I started playing drums for a week, was playing everything from jazz to punk rock to hardcore, just rock, everything. And just trying to get some chops back and, and uh, again, no idea why, what I was doing. I just needed to play. That was on a Monday. That Friday, the singer of Rancid hits me up and he's like, hey, give me a call. And I'm like, oh, all right. And he had been texting me a little bit that week since I had just seen him. And this was October by now, right? You were fired in all, August. and Yeah, correct. Correct. It was October. And uh, just a couple days before Halloween, like two days before Halloween. So I call him, I'm nervous, you know, I'm still intimidated by these guys. And um, he's like telling me like super broken heart. He's like, hey man, how's it going? Like, and he's just so bombed. I'm like, uh-oh. And he's like, man, Brett Reed just quit Rancid. Brett Reed's their drummer. And he's like, we have this three and a half week UK tour in like four days, five days. And I'm like, oh no. And I'm like broken hearted instantly thinking he's telling me my you know this band I love so much is breaking up and, and like, you no. say that and I get the chills <laughs> I'm just like when you said that the drummer quit I'm like oh yay I just yeah. get so excited <laughs> I'm like oh no and he sounds so sad and he's like yeah we have this huge sold out tour coming up in a couple days we want to know if you'll do it and without even thinking I'm like hell yeah and then like instant tears just running down my face instant nausea <laughs> i was like so what have i just said yeah i'm like oh my gosh like and we talked for two seconds he's like yeah i'm gonna have lars call you in a little bit i'm like cool I'm like what just happened <laughs> i hang up the phone run in tell him like they told me not to tell anybody but i was like I got to tell some people <laughs> I tell Spike and I'm freaking out. And I just ran down and jumped on my drums, started playing the hell out of Rancid. And Lars calls me, who's the other singer of the band, gives me 25 songs to learn in two days. And I'm like, okay. And I did not stop playing. I would just play and play and play. The minute I wasn't playing, I'm listening to them in my headphones. I'm listening to them around the house. And I had been listening to Rancid forever but I never like played along on drums to their music and memorized the parts, you know, it was, so that was a, a big, like a lot of homework with no time to do it. So I learned all the songs. So nervous. I shipped my drums to somewhere in England. I'm so nervous and I couldn't like bring my drum tech with me. I was using their drum tech and everything. And it was just me solo. And Spike came with me. We flew to LA the day after Halloween, um, November 1st. 
and I get to this little rehearsal space. We have just borrowed gear. No one's there. I'm setting up these drums and getting ready. So nervous, you know, just totally upset stomach. And the guys roll in and they're like, hey, and they all give me a hug, throw on their guitars. And literally like 20 seconds from when they walk in the door, they're like, let's play Roots, which is one of their songs, Roots Radicals. And Lars, the singer, just starts this song. And I'm like, <gasps> like, we're just going. And I didn't even hit my drums with them. I was like, ah! And so I just like do the build and come in and start playing along. And and I'm so nervous. I'm singing backup vocals, <laughs> even though I didn't have a microphone, which ended up landing me a job playing back, singing backups. But, um, and it ends and they're all laughing and smiling huge and so excited. And I'm just still like deer in headlights. They're like, yeah, like, let's try a fast one. I'm like, okay. And so they had me play this song called It's Quite All Right, which doesn't have many drum fills in it. There's room, you know, and I'm a big believer in not stepping on the vocals, so to speak. So I know when the vocals doing its thing, when the guitar and bass are doing their thing and where there's just room that you can flex a little bit. You know, I don't, I don't like to have talent attack as they call it, but just a little room to flex that the original drummer didn't. So I just take liberties and throw in these kind of long fills here and there and just watch the guys just keep turning to each other and smiling. And it's a fast song. We finished that song and they're just dying, laughing and smiling and so excited. And they're like, let's take a break. I'm like, take a break. We played four minutes of music, you know? And so sure enough, we go outside. They're all kind of passing around a phone, talking to like lawyers and different people and just working out a million things. And then all of a sudden I'm sitting at this table, this little picnic table with Spike. They all walk up, sit down right in front of me. And they're like, so we want you to be a permanent member of Rancid, full quarter partner. Are you down? And without even, you know, thinking twice, I'm like, yeah, of course. And they're like, Brad, let's jam. <laughs> I'm like, oh my God. Like, what just you know? happened? What so just happened? I'm... A member of Rancid. And we went back in. We played a few more songs is all. We rehearsed the next day and only played a few songs. We jumped on an airplane to England, not having even played through one full concert worth of songs. My first show, um, I believe, was in Manchester. I, um, but either way, it was for like 2,500 people. And I was playing like 30 songs, you know, because, oh, that was the other thing. After the first rehearsal, they gave me 13 more songs to learn that night in my hotel room um and uh every day i would learn new songs on tour and we'd be playing songs i'd never played but my first show i played everything went great i i was playing songs i'd never even played with them before and it went great and fast forward 14 years and i'm still in rancid <laughs> so inspiring i love your story i love your story it's my favorite <laughs> it's my favorite story because I lived through most of it, but uh, <laughs> yeah. it's still fun to hear it. I love to hear it. It's the perfect little inspirational message of just not giving up and just hanging in there and fighting and passion. Yeah. I love it. So proud well, of you. It's, I mean, to me, it's just one of those things where the the idea of like the blurred lines of what's the finish line and what's the starting line, you know, and, and that again you got to reflect because you got to remember what got you where you are good and bad and learn from those mistakes. It's like, all right, where can I be less stubborn? Where can I be more flexible? Where can I work harder? 
where can I apply myself more? Where can I, you know, we all have weaknesses, we all have strengths and, and without, you know, kind of identifying those things and, and being self-aware, we might not progress, even though we're moving forward, that doesn't mean we're progressing, you know? And so I think it's important to do both. We got to move forward and we got to progress as people. And I don't know it all. I have a lot to learn and, and I'm just trying to keep my mind a sponge where I can keep learning from everything around me, good and bad. But I think if there's one thing people can take from my story, it's that there's no mold you have to fit in. There's no rules. There's no anything. The cliches of people telling you, you can't do something and doing it anyway. It's in one in a million and all that. None of it means anything because you can do anything you want as cheesy as it sounds. Nothing will stop anybody from doing something great. You just got to be stubborn and not ever give up, you know? Perfect. Perfect advice. I love that that message comes from you after what you've been through and that you are still so humble about it and that you still are trying to be better every day. You haven't just settled in. Oh, I've got this great job. I can just settle in and relax. You're still improving yourself every day. You're still wanting to be better. Trying, trying. That's all we can do. (laughs) I love it. It's so great. So thank you. Thank you for taking time to talk to me. I know you're so busy and I really appreciate it. Happy to do it. Happy to be a part of the show. So thank you. I'm, I'm glad you're doing the show. It's special and important and, and you're doing great things. So I appreciate it. So thank you. Mm, thanks. You're great support. I probably wouldn't be doing this again if it weren't for your pep talk to me as well. So <laughs> I like to kick people in the butt now and then. Yeah, you're really good <laughs> butt kicker. <laughs> so thank you for that. <laughs> and you're really good at making me cry. So I just uh, love well. you. You're welcome. (laughs) No, I didn't say thank you to that. (laughs) But you're awesome. So thank you. Thank you. You're awesome. Love you too. You're still here? Well, then click on the next episode to get more lemonade. One more day.